0: Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
1: This is Sunday Edition with Anthony, a news magazine show featuring human interest, in the spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affect all of us in and out of the ACB community. Hello, 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 and welcome to another edition of Sunday edition with Anthony. I am very glad to be on air with you guys. I want to just say a quick thank you for all the positive feedback I got on last week's show about convention. It was pretty darn awesome. I like how personal everybody got, and the feedback was awesome, so thank you for that. This week, I have got another great show prepped up. We're going to be talking a little bit later on with Penny Reeder. You guys all know and love her from GDUI. Later on, I have a happening segment with a guy out of New York. His name is Brian Velasquez, and he's doing some advocacy on raising blind children and not sheltering them and letting them experience the world. But I don't want to say too much. I'll let him use his words. And you'll be hearing a couple of little promos throughout the show for national convention and a very special message from Debbie Grubb about Florida Council of the Blinds convention that will be broadcast right here on ACB radio, the 15th, 16th, and then on the 17th, on this very show. We'll do a round table wrap-up discussion about all the highlights, what was amazing, what m- little hang-ups they might have had, and how we're gonna use what they learn from FCB for ACB's National. But in my first segment, our movers and shaker segment, I have someone who's moved back into ACB and is shaking things up welcome, Tony Stevens.
0: Thank you very much, Anthony. It's nice to be here.
1: Thank you for coming. So you were out of ACB for a little while. You just recently came back. Why don't we start with what brought you to ACB the first time and what brought you back?
0: So yeah, so it it was a, a crazy year interim when I was with ACB last time and then ACB this time. You know, I came back early March right as coronavirus was starting to settle itself down in the United States. But you know, what brought me to ACB, I had always known of ACB in college and I was kind of an independent growing up um, um, in college radio. I worked for a college radio station for a number of years at the University of Georgia. And we had an expression uh, with the fraternity life I was never into, but we were Gamma Delta Iotas for gosh darn independence. Um, you know, so my, my attitude sort of growing up was a bit indie and, you know, kind of individualistic and, and not part of groups per se. I was a member of ACB in college for a little while, but I, I wasn't a collective person in that sense of, of group related. Uh, it wasn't until I spent uh, about 10, 11, 12 years after I finished grad school uh, that I was out in the real world and had a heck of a job that was hands down the worst job ever uh, of someone that just didn't know what to do with a blind person. And it was a great job on paper. I was leading communications for a big nonprofit in Washington, D.C., and we just moved down from New York City uh, with my wife and kids, and it was an excellent job, except, as folks will know, with, with a boss that doesn't know what to do with a blind person. Yeah. It was a nightmare. And so I was thinking to myself, wow, if this is rough for me, and I've, I've been so blessed with so many opportunities and, and people that have lifted me up along the way, and then you hit a brick wall like that, it messes you up. Uh, yeah. So as I was looking for what to do next, you know, we were in Washington, had a newborn kid, didn't really know what to do with my life after that job, sort of pivoted out of control and, and just kind of, yeah, it was one of those things that I'm sure other people have empathized or experienced as well. Uh, you know, an opportunity came up with an organization called NIB, the National Institute for the Blind, um, which does a lot of employment work. And they were looking for a policy person. And I had been doing sort of political communications work for a while, you know, in other roles and other jobs before that and other work I'd done. So I took this job and, and it threw me into the trenches of advocating on blindness issues, mostly around employment. And this was back in 2000, just this January of 2011, I started working at NIB. And it was at that time that I met somebody who ended up becoming a close- colleague in this fight and that was eric bridges he was my counterpart over at the american council of the blind and so eric and i got to know each other really well and worked a lot on a lot of projects around rehab and and in the senate offices for health education labor and pensions and and all these different rehab issues and so i started working a lot on acb issues on the side Uh, and then when eric was Fortunate to step up in the role of leading ACB as executive director back in 2015, the end of 2015. You know, a little birdie showed up on my shoulder. I was like, hey, man, you know, we're going to have a a spot open for advocacy. And this is something obviously you're passionate about, you know, telling stories and helping people follow along. So would you be interested in coming over? So I did. And so in January 2016, I started ACBs, the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, filling big shoes that Eric had set out because he had been doing that role for about seven years before. And I did that for three years. I left to to spend a year running another nonprofit that was non-blindness related here in Baltimore City where I live. But then after a year of that, and and the joys of nonprofits are sometimes you get into something and and they tell you to wear a lot of hats, right? I felt like I was a haberdasher. I had like hundreds of hats on my head. (laughs) You know, I took it to be closer to my kids and I was working harder than I ever worked before. I never got to see my kids, even though I was working at home. And then again, a little birdie showed up on my shoulder again. I was like, hey, there's this development thing starting up at ACB. And so uh, these, these darn birds, they're, they're, they're all over the place. And they'll land on their sho- your shoulder and put little words in your ears. And next thing you know, you're, you're back where you started from. <laughs>
1: Well, hopefully you've washed those shirts because with birds come a little <laughs> yeah.
0: bit of bird poop. But- <laughs> you're right. <laughs> These are very clean, well hygienic birds. Nothing like that at all. They've been very well respected birdies. Well, stay
1: tuned, listeners, because in a couple of weeks we will have um, we'll have Eric on as well, and we can get the other side of that story. So you're back, and yep. you're passionate. You know, I've had the privilege of of interacting with you a few times. I heard you speak. What are the goals? What are you looking uh, to accomplish right now in ACB? You know, besides convention.
0: (laughs) Besides convention, man, this is what a year. What a year (laughs) to come back in a job and you have all these things on your plate thinking this is what you're going to do. And then suddenly everything is, the whole world is turned upside down. But you know what? It is really making an excellent opportunity out of what could otherwise be a very challenging time. I at the core, am a relationship builder. That is what I have done my entire life. Uh, Maybe I'm codependent and want everybody to be happy. I don't know. The joys of growing up in a broken family. But at the core, I'm a relationship builder. Been excellent opportunity to work in the media. It's been an excellent opportunity to work in advocacy. And and I did a stint in ministry for a while. But all you're doing is you're really helping people to believe in your cause and your mission, right? And you're persuading people to walk alongside you. So in my role as development director, it takes on sort of different hats, if you will, but it's all essentially the same, you know, building relationships with people in ACB, outside ACB, and telling them, hey, you walk with us, be a part of us, come, come and join us. And if it's as a member or in our situation as, you know, bringing on this new role as a development a director, which is the first time ACB has done something like this in a really long time. You know, building relationships that also uh, people are able to give in other ways, not just their time or by being a member, but in other ways of generosity. So it's connecting with people and identifying those who have the means to give and those who are capable of giving. And a lot of people want to give. I think we've seen that with the coronavirus, how generous people have been in so many ways. Yeah. When you, you think everybody's down for the count and the whole country's unemployed, there's people stepping up every day for new fundraisers and new opportunities to help be part of things. So my job is to, to bring those people into our family and to embrace them and to let them know that they're part of us and that they help sustain us and they help move our mission forward.
1: And dare I say, I mean, you come across from all of my interactions so far and things that people have told me about, about you as well, you come across as a, as a people reader. And I'm sure that money, of course, is, is very important, but I'm sure you're also developing people's talents and um, matching what they might want to do with what they can do and helping inspire maybe things that they didn't know they could do. And in that vein, what do you want to say to ACB at large that during this time they want to do something and they just have no idea what to do?
0: I would tell people to find out what their passion is right now. And I think a lot of people are discovering that in this time of isolation. A lot of people are taking up piano. A lot of people are taking up writing. A lot of people are taking up just the passion of conversation and talking with people. Uh, cause if you can find your passion, then that can be a compass for you to go out and do good in the world and to feel good about it. And also when it's hard work, working in nonprofits and working in these spaces and, dealing each day to day with people's challenges and people that are really in, in dire straits financially and emotionally and, and with blindness, most of all, psychologically, which is something we never talk about hardly. It's finding your passion because the passion gets you through the challenging times, the, the weathered storms, you know, sailors are passionate about sailing and they say, you know, calm storms don't make a sailor, calm seas yeah. don't in that sense. So, you know, whatever your passion is, it'll help you get through these difficult times and it'll, it'll help kind of line you into, into what are the gifts you can bring. For some people, their passion is, is seeing other people be happy. And so from a donor standpoint, that's great to be able to give and, and know that your hard labor, it's like, like you know what, what being a parent is like or what someone that's been a CEO of a company is like. You work hard and you realize it's not just about the product you're selling, but it's about the family you create and, and that you care about them. So for people that are donors, you know, it is that passion to, to find something that you can attach to in the organization that you identify with and you see as a value. For a member, it's finding something within the organization. If it's an, a special interest affiliate, you know, our, I know for some people, you know, $10, $15, $25 a year, that can be a lot, right? But for some people, yeah. that's, that's hardly anything. And so, you know, that's like uh, nowadays, $10 or $15, if you can join a special interest affiliate that maybe is also a passion in addition to your state affiliate, then you can, you know, really tap into your passion more and get, get involved in so many other ways. You know, I think it's important for people to know what they're passionate about, and that can really help guide them to being fulfilled in the charity that they're able to do if it's giving their time or their resources in other ways. So let's
1: look at this conversation for the next two or three minutes as though you were standing at the podium at the banquet closing convention. What's your message for ACB for the next couple of months throughout the rest of this crisis and the year ahead?
0: I think in a lot of ways, and the convention is, you know, sort of a, um, I think, a mirror of our society where we are all going to be distanced more than we ever have been with this convention. But at the same time, we're going to be together, and we're going to be a community. You know, I talked about being an individual in my early twenties. It was very different than where I am today as somebody that that you know has been fortunate to have a family and have kids and get a sense of what it means to be fortunate to have people around you. And to find ways to engage with people. So my, my hope is at the end of convention is people will leave and they will keep the community alive. Right. I mean, across the board, organizations that are membership organizations are shrinking. If it's the Lions, if it's the Rotary Club, if it's ACB, you know, numbers collectively are going down because it's a different mindset in younger age adults as to how they interact and how they find a sense of community, wanting a, a sense of social interaction. This convention is forcing us to, to sort of take on new ways of social interaction but i think that's going to reach out to a whole new group of people that have never known acb have never been part of our community so what i would say to them is be ready to embrace those that are going to be coming into our fold because we have an opportunity to really connect with them this time more than you know a lot of people can't make it to convention because of the cost but this time it's virtually free in the sense that we're going to be streaming a lot of it for free over like Facebook and YouTube and other channels and over Alexa, you know, it, we're going to reach people we've never reached before and we need to bring them into our fold because this, the stronger we are by numbers, the stronger we are in our voice, the more amplified we are. And there's a lot of work that needs to get done. And coronavirus has pulled back that onion layer a little to show us yeah. in areas where there exists, the systemic ableism in our country still very much similar to structural barriers in race We still see that in disability. And so we need to work across disability aisles. We need to work collectively as a group in the blindness world with our, with our partners and and allies in that area. And really we got a lot of work ahead of us, but we can do it as family and we can have fun along the way as, as family Mm. and friends and community.
1: Well, you just hit one key word from my show. I like to have fun. um, And I like to bring fun to people that might be my driving passion there's a lot of them. In fact, my partner keeps telling me, can you just not have a new idea for one week? Maybe one week. Yeah, yeah my <laughs> wife's the same we, way. Yeah. Before we get to the fun, what, is there anything you want to say, so let's call them the old guard, that really don't want things to change, that ACB ain't broke, so why are we trying to fix it?
0: Well, in in a lot of ways, I don't think ACB is broke at all. I think I think what it is, well, some might have maybe a perception that it's not the ACB it was in 20 or 30 years. That's a really good thing. Uh, Organizations, in order to stay alive and to sustain themselves, they need to change. And, you know, a lot of that is done through how you set up your constitution and your membership and your leadership. I mean, ACB is a strong organization, I think, in a lot of ways, because we do have elected officers by the members that, that rotate out every few years. It's not the same leaders decades after decades, you know. So, it allows to have change in just faces and voices. At the same time, uh, you know, it it is, change is hard any way you look at it, but gosh, how easy it becomes when you're forced into it. And you realize the same way that, like, for a lot of us that went blind later in life, um, you know, that maybe weren't born blind and understood those challenges when change is thrown on your lap, literally, maybe in the course of a day, or me, it was a couple of days uh, when you go from sighted to not sighted. And it is, uh, you know, something that you realize how strong the human spirit is. So when we are challenged, I feel like we particularly, as people who are blind and visually impaired, rise to that test because we've overcome these issues in other ways of the past of dealing with change, and it makes us stronger. So we all have the power to change within us. It's a will that we need to cultivate. And I think just look at the exciting opportunity. Think about how many more people we can grow at this convention and as an organization, and we need younger members, we need, new fresh leadership that, that is young and innovative and not afraid to to think out of the box. And and so I would just say embrace that because that's, that's going to be key is because the baby boomer population by at large is, is getting older and older. And that's been a large part of our leadership for decades now. And so we need to, we need to, to think about ACB 10, 20, 30 years from now as well.
1: So one more kind of tough ACB-related question before we get to the life story, which is really what I'm excited about for this interview. There are a lot of communities within the blind community, and there are some that just really aren't fully represented in ACB. What are some of your thoughts on reaching out to them, and and how do you want to pull them into the folds? You already spoke about the younger set, but there's still a couple of other sets that aren't really highly represented.
0: A group of us in Washington that are all blind uh, would get together routinely like once a month and talk policy and, and social issues facing the blind. You know, the big, the big 30,000 foot issues you don't get to think about all the time when you're, you know, hammering through Congress or, you know, writing press releases or things like that, right? You're, when you're in the weeds. And I think one of the big things that is across the board in blindness that we experience is the psychology of people who are blind. Uh, and this is probably someone's good PhD if they already haven't done it. But when you're in a situation where you have to rely on the, the the help of others in a lot of ways to get out and get the most fundamental things, we're really seeing this with coronavirus right now. You tend to be a little less argumentative. You know, you always hear from the blinds community that, that it's, it, we're not as, at times people argue, we're not as loud as we need to be. And this is as a whole, Right. Um, right, but but it's it's part of the psychology of like, hey, I don't want to upset this person that I'm going to need to help me get <laughs> milk and you know toilet paper later today. So that's stripping it down to the fundamentals. When you look at the other org- organizations that represent people, maybe that are different stakeholder groups that are in the margins as well. I mean, it's one thing to be blind in the margins, but then uh, other intersectionality of of LGBTQ or race, you know, which is diverse, d- disparaging impacts, you know, when you look at like diabetes uh, and some of the main causes of blindness now in our country uh, and how Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, impacts uh, communities of color much more significantly and and by the numbers. You know, you know, there's other structural barriers as well. So there's other psychological things going on that have created sort of this social psychology. And I think in a lot of ways, we need to work towards identifying those and we need to, to make sure that we make way to have those systemic and structural barriers in our own organization sort of pulled out of the way so that we can empower those other people that maybe want to take charge and want to be leaders. Uh, You know, we're doing a lot of work and have received some corporate funding thanks to our generous corporate sponsors on leadership training. And so I would encourage folks that feel like maybe their affiliate or their voice isn't loud enough uh, to really take advantage. If we're doing sort of like legislative boot camps or I'll be doing, you know, hopefully some sort of messaging boot camps, like engaging people on how to how to go out and talk and build relationships and things like that on my end of what I do. You know, as we engage people, I, I encourage you to get involved and find ways to listen and reflect and, and learn. I was a, a stick in the mud for years. And it was just having the catalyst of one person in your life can really make a difference. So mentoring, I think is good, but just not being afraid. That's probably the key, right? Not being afraid yeah. to speak up and have your voice. I always talk about when I was in advocacy about... How society, not just people who are blind, but everybody, the first thing you do when you're born, you cry. That's human nature. And then what's the first thing that happens after that? Someone tells you to shut up. So yeah. I think if we go back to our inner crying, we don't want to be a whiner all the time, but we know we need to have our voice heard. So don't be afraid to have your voice heard. And, and if the system is set up in a way to make room for you and that voice echoes out, uh, you know, people are there to help, help walk you through and, and lead you the way you need to go.
1: Awesome. Thank you. So from the ACB standpoint to Tony Stevens, the man, you have had a interesting storied life. And I only know a few bits and pieces, sort of uh, press release, blurbish pieces of it. We want to know your story. Where did it start? And how'd you get to where you are now? So let's go with where you grow up? What was yeah, your family so like?
0: so I, my family, we always joked we could have a whole family reunion at, a, at, a, at an Applebee's booth. Uh, it was pretty small. You know, I was growing up in a broken family. My mother, you know, was from Atlanta. So I, my early childhood, I was in Atlanta. My, my dad and mom divorced. He left when I was like five. He was shell-shocked from Vietnam. He split when I was five. And we didn't find out I was legally blind till I was four. I had, to, I had a congenital issue with my retinas. that I was born with a, a genetic condition called excellent retinous And so that materialized itself through low vision. Uh, my dad was out when I was, I was five, but then when I was 15, I went total. And he started to kind of slowly come back in. I don't know if he felt guilty about it or what, but he slowly came back in during my high school years, right as I was graduated and really starting to apply myself. I was, like I said earlier, a stick in the mud. I, I had no, if you asked me when I wanted to be at a, as a kid, I said, I want to be a roadie for Van Halen. You know, I could think of nothing more exciting than just picking up drums or something for a living. Rock on. and uh rock on's right but it was probably if weather. now that i've had friends that have grown up and have worked in the in the biz so to speak using little air quotes uh <laughs> man, it's, it's a rugged life I'm, you know it would have worn it down thick so probably the best thing that happened was going blind and sort of in my course trajectory i had at the time you know just kid being born in a broken family and all that and but then my dad slowly started to come back and we started to make men's right as he was transferred as i was in late high school uh, to mexico so he was transferred by his company to move to Mexico City to head up operations for AT&T, which was a huge venture. They were doing a huge project, redoing all of Mexico's infrastructure for telecommunications. And he was leading that. He never went to college. You know, he was all trained in Vietnam. He learned how to deal with telephone lines by building bombs, essentially. He knew how to deal with wires, and you put one in the right place and one in the wrong place. So he was real good in that sense and just disciplined uh, with the Marines, even though he had bipolar and PTSD. Uh, from Vietnam. But he was in Mexico. And then when I was 21, we got the call. It was Palm Sunday, 1994. And we got the call that, that he was dead. Uh, we found out shortly after that the cause of his death was at the hands of Mexican Federalist soldiers. It was at a real interesting time in Mexico history and politics. There were revolts in the South uh, by the Zapatistans and in Chiapas. And, you know, I would go down and visit them. And uh, when, when we were sort of you know, I was growing up and going off to college and was on scholarship for journalism in college. And so he died at a time when Mexico was really in flux. And, you know, I remember going down there before and it was like, no big surprise to see people with machine guns showing up at your door asking for a donation. And that was just how Mexico was in the early 90s. And that changed everything. A lot of people think it was the blindness that kind of led me into being an advocate. and Yes, it was. It, it definitely formed my molded my own psychology, right? But it was his death that said, you know what, my dreams of maybe being a a FM commercial radio guy in the commercial world was thrown out a window. And I decided then I was going to start working on like immigration issues and I became passionate for Mexico. I got a lot of love and respect for the people of Mexico and just hugely i had been down there uh, after grad school. Uh, you know i decided to sell everything i had and and went off to become a catholic priest uh, went up to a monastery outside pittsburgh for a couple of years and then got involved with a group called the jesuits that w- works a lot in higher ed yeah. and so the jesuits you know was great it led me around the world i spent some time in mexico spent some time in the middle east canada not, not that i think of canada as a as a you know a developing part of the, the world but it just formed me sort of on an international mindset more of a global mindset so the problem is you can't get married as a priest and i was i was feeling kind of lonely even though I lived in a community with, you know, 20, 30 people, you know, there was still something, some intimacy that was missing. So I left and got married and started working for a social justice think tank in New York city. And that's what, what really tied me more to this idea of social justice in a sense of what the disability movement was doing. And I think I mentioned earlier about, you know, NIB and that stuff. And that, that kind of came when we moved down from New York city to um, Washington, where my wife is from where I'm at now outside Washington, Baltimore. But yeah, so it was it's kind of a long arc, but throughout it is just really uh, you know, being thrown into sort of social justice causes at the death of my father and really feeling the plight of of a whole country of people that was really struggling at a time of, of tyranny and sort of the kind of junta way of the nineties. And when I was there, it was just starting to end when I was living there in two thousand. President Fox just was elected and it was a huge it was the first time that Mexico had sort of undergone significant political transformation in like 70 something years. So, yeah. so yeah, so there's that part of me that there's a song by Paul Simon uh, called uh, Me and Julio. And there's oh, that line, you know, when the radical priests come to get me released, I was all, we were all on the cover of Newsweek and that was, that was my goal, but I'm much more mellow now. I'm much more happy going through databases and spreadsheets and identifying ways to create relationships versus you know, going out there and stomping my boots around and protest. So I've grown old. I'd like to think wiser.
1: So let's take a step back for a second. Obviously, there's a theme that's running through your life. And and you spoke earlier about passion and Mm -hmm. finding what that passion is. and, And I guess that would create a theme for someone else's life once they find the passion. But to throw yourself into studying for priesthood, there's, you know, you always hear the term, you know, the calling you know, you're being yeah. called or, or please correct me if I'm wrong and, and then add to it. I'm going to assume that somewhere along those lines, obviously, you know, you definitely wanted the more intimacy, but I'm assuming that the calling was, the calling was different. And so you and so got to find at some point during, during that process.
0: So Jesuit schools, uh, you know, which was a huge part of my formation was when I was in the Jesuits. And we had an expression, they're, they're known like Georgetown and University of San Francisco and uh, Loyola and Maryland and Chicago and Fordham and New York. So they got universities all over the world. We had a, a motto that was, give us a year and we'll ruin your life. Because these parents would send their kids to these expensive Jesuit schools. And sure enough, a year out of that school, the kids would be like working in the missions, Peace Corps, you know, like doing stuff that's like, that's exactly that. It's a calling. And I think when I was in the Jesuits, I realized, I've always had a calling, right? Maybe it was a longing for a father or a longing for love, uh, a feeling of disconnect and trying to regain that when my father walked out or when I went blind or when he died, you know, all these different things you can break down psychologically. But I think at the core, there is, you're right in a sense that it is a calling, a vocation. And and I maybe saw that as a Catholic as saying, oh, well, this must mean if I have a calling, I got to go be a priest. And I think when I was in there, I realized, no, it doesn't mean that you can still go out and do amazing things and not have to be wearing a collar and be tied to some religious group you can do it independent again gosh darn independent you know you can do it independently in that sense and (laughs) and so it very much is a a you're right, as much as a calling but but isn't that what passion is passion is basically a calling to any it's a calling to what we want to do what we love to do and in this case it's just connecting for me my passion is to connect people and it's it's great when that formula works out to connect the right people and so that positive change to better people's lives can come but you know there's a connection and i, I think that's you know again so much of it, everything we learned in life they say you learned in kindergarten i think in a lot of ways our psychology was formed a lot in those years too and so you know that's kind of who i am as a person so it's definitely like you're right it's a calling and so when i say to people find your passion it's really just finding your calling and it may not be a job it may just be a hobby it may just be two hours on a weekend but you can be surprised how much two hours in a weekend can refuel you. So the whole week of mundane flies by gracefully.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned your wife a couple of times. I know you have two boys. Tell us a little about them and, and family life and moving from New York to Washington.
0: Well, I I guess my LinkedIn says Washington, I guess. So it's, it's a community. I mean, Baltimore is like saying, uh, you know, you live in, you know, Rockville Center to New York, you know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, so, uh, you know, it's half the distance of Philly to New York or something like, that. we love Baltimore. It's a great city. Again, it's a city full of passionate people, right? There's a lot of causes here, especially since Freddie Gray in 2015. So we moved into Baltimore a few years ago after Freddie Gray to be closer to that sort of current of grassroots advocacy. And, uh, you know, got us far enough away from DC, uh, which is just a diff, it's not my vibe. I'm like you, I'm, I'm, I, I think all my experiences in life make me laugh a lot and, and sometimes take life with a grain of salt. You know, I take it very seriously, but I'm also not afraid to laugh. And DC is just so serious, you know? And so Baltimore's a little bit more, you know, people can let their hair down, which is great. Cause it's also, it's a great diversity. Um, we're in public school with our boys. We want to make sure they grow up in a world that they understand is not reflective of what they look like. And we constantly try to talk about ways that they can be exposed to new cultures and identity. They got a friend that's transgendered. I started undergoing the process in the fifth grade and the school system here embraced the child and it just blew us away as to how much this town loves diversity and to take people in. And my wife and I are both, um, you know, and and living in New York, you know, being from New York, you know, it'll form you and, and make you share the streets with people you never thought you might share the streets with. Um, Absolutely. And, and it builds a sense of of group solidarity. Even though, you know, we lived in Washington Heights for a while, which was we were the only non Dominicans on our block. Uh, you know, they called it the Domain and Cambarrio, and they would set up election polling elections, you know, when the Dominican Republic election would go on. Yeah. It it you still feel like you're part of, even though there are clearly these cultural uh celebrations, uh, we're on it together. And so I think for my family you know, I mean, essentially a partner, right? I mean, it's a wife, but at the end of the day, it's a partner, Uh, regardless of who that person is. It's somebody you want to share life with, because life ain't the easiest thing to get through, as a lot of us know, and just being with that other person. And with the kids, it's trying to raise them just to be good and understand that they can be with really anybody and and to hope that they grow up and embrace that, because we need more community and cultural acceptance, I think, in our world. And, And there's just not it's hard to. It's easy to get worn down these days uh, when you see the hostility out there towards "quote the other close quote." My hope is just with the kids uh, that, that we're all we're doing at the end of the day. I'm just trying to raise them to love the other, whatever the other may be.
1: God bless. I uh, had Dan Spoon, our illustrious president, on mm-hmm. last weekend, and in the process of telling one of his stories, he said he was on a call with you. You indicated that there were four different Zoom conversations yes. going on in the household, <laughs> yeah. and uh, f- I got I got two different feedbacks on uh, you know how personable that was, and you need to have Tony yeah. Stevens on your show, and I was in talks with getting you on here. I'm sure our listeners would love to know what is you know what is COVID, what is sheltering in place look like for you, the boys, your wife. Oh my gosh,
0: I've been banished to my basement for this interview. <laughs> um you know they have, i have not seen my office in weeks because my 10 year old uses it all the time now he's like uh his name's oliver and i keep thinking of oliver oh what's his name from annie the broadway play annie with the uh, the guy's name was um, oliver oh oliver warbucks oliver warbucks daddy warbucks, warbucks. Yes. so he's like in this giant chair that surrounds him like he's oliver warbucks and he's like yes i'm taking over the world from my father's mac You know, it is weird. It's like a co-work space. I feel like we have a shared workspace because there are four conference calls and four floors at certain times of the day between my wife and myself and the boys. So it is a challenge. You know, it it reminds us of how much everybody's flying by the seat of their pants through this whole thing. And you realize that daily when you're like, wait, they're making you do what? For what? Like, what? This isn't teaching you. Like, what is it, you know? And then you realize, this is why I didn't major in education. You know, that kind of stuff. (laughs) Um, So... I can't imagine teachers doing that 30 times a day. And it was nice because on Cinco de Mayo it was also teacher appreciation day. So the kids were able to go to school and wave to their teachers from a distance, which is still so weird. And you get choked up to think, you know, this is their world they're growing up in. And is it going to be like, I don't know, there's nothing in human history to compare it to, I guess that we've learned in school. I mean, nobody really talked about the flu of, you know, 1917 and 1918, yeah. but yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to be interesting to see what their, their worldview is going to form out of this.
1: It's funny. I was actually thinking exactly about that recently. You know, we we, we learned about the bubonic plague, but we learned about rats, um, yeah. you know, and how quickly it spread. We didn't, you know, we didn't hear anything about how humanity, you know, changed or I mean, we did sort of in the industrial ways and things like that. But, you know, we didn't we didn't know the, the personal stories that went along with it and I'd like to think that the generation that's going through this now, the young, passionate kids, which I still want to call myself, but I guess I really can't anymore, you know that they're going to take this experience and and make the world better going forward because of because of this. I know in New York and, and I'm going to ask you where you were during nine eleven but I know in New York after nine eleven it could have been, and I, I shudder to kind of say this, but I think in a different city, it would have been a different result. You know, people are always like, it must've been devastating. It was horrible, you know, and yes, all those things are true. It was, yeah. No, no. Um, but it took days, if you know, weeks, but, but days for us to kind of say, you know, you didn't get us, you didn't get us, no. you know, we're yeah, still here was... and, and not only that, we're, we're bigger, better and better. I was horribly to see this in one way, but life, lemons, lemonade, it brought a, a humanity out in New York that had always been there, but no one paid attention to because it's so fast paced. And I think that this situation we're going through right now is going to form this generation the way 9-11 formed me. Well,
0: and it, for, it forced us to slow down. It was like life moved in slow motion for those months after. I thank God wasn't in the city that day. I was my mother, my grandfather died a couple of days before 9-11 and I was down with my mother and just helping out, uh, with things With she was dealing with. But when I went back up, you know, later that fall, I remember getting off at, at, uh, the, the path I took the, um, stayed with some friends and family upstate for a little while and came down to Hoboken and took the path train from Hoboken. You could take it into New York city and they closed the world trade tower at that time. But I remember taking the path and the smell of like diesel and just burnt like it just was coming through the tunnel as the train does its split and instead of going we'll trade it would go north to 33rd street it just still isn't grained in my memory and you know the you get off at penn station and or like you know up the up the streets there and there's guys with machine guns and the brooklyn bridge was closed off it looked like a military zone you know and it was it was a psychology that the same way now I feel like is like people in their scrubs, right. You know, the doctors with the masks, it's like the masks is today's machine guns from nine 11 when everybody was in the street and that eerie feeling, but you're exactly right that it it made people stronger and it brought us together as a community. Uh, You know, even though we're distance, you know, I, I, I I tear up whenever I hear in the news and we're trying to do here in Baltimore, but it's failing miserably every night at seven o'clock, you know, the mayor's Uh like, let's make some noise at seven. But you hear, what goes on along Broadway in New York and it's nothing, it pales in comparison, but it's, it is this sense of, we're all in this together. And I think even though we're distanced now, it says a lot to be able to tell people, Hey, we are all in this together and we are all connected by the common reality that this is real. And it is, uh, you know, people are really getting sick and we have felt it in our own community because diabetes is much more at risk and we've lost some members and that's been tough. Knowing people that have died from this, it hits home much more than I think a lot of people realize. I think it, it's, it's impacting us all, which is why it's great to have groups like what ACV is doing now with the community calls and getting people just to talk. Cause I remember that, like I remember late nights and friends couches in Brooklyn after nine 11 and you know, yeah. just the rebuilding of the city and just those conversations. And I feel like, you know, that's the thing we need to try to find is a place where we can just have those conversations. It might not be on a friend's couch, but it's, you know, Zoom is the best thing we got now and that, that can work as well as the phone and stuff like that. So we got to talk. It's important to talk about this stuff.
1: Absolutely. What community calls have you really enjoyed?
0: I kind of like some of the goofy ones. Like there's one about cooking. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, uh, it, you know, th- that kind of stuff. I'm just like, oh, I never, you know, I, I love that it's diversity. It's not just people just catching up so that they're constructive. So, but Cindy Van awesome. Winkle, the membership, coordinator she's been doing a great job of connecting them but yeah there was one like on food and of course i anything with me that has food tied to it i'm gonna like gravitate towards my favorite (laughs) place to have a meeting is at a diner so i'm
1: right there with you yeah either either at the diner or at the beach (laughs) exactly exactly yeah. yeah so i have a funny story that i tell um when i got back from guy my um nephew was two and a half at the time and when I got back from guide dog school, he was so excited. And then they live in Virginia beach. I was still in New York at the time. And then a year later, when I came down, he was playing with the, with the kids next door. And I overheard him telling them that Bodie, my guide was to help me find my glasses. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I've had the dog for a little, about a year now, like has you know where does he think these glasses are and does he think Bodhi's dumb for not finding the glasses but then you know i realized wow i've been here two days he basically helped me oh they had moved from one house to another as well uh, he basically helped me map the house and and he's you know without being really really conscious of it just watching my sister and, and her husband you know he's he's telling me there's something on the floor and and all the things was there fear and what was it like when the kids were really little When did they realize, you know, when did they, what was that moment when they realized you were blind and and how much inside you did you, you know, what kind of a dad am I going to be? Things like that.
2: You know, it was almost
0: gradual. Like I, I think with the kids growing up as a, as a dad who was blind, it surprised me more about the little things they started to do that. I didn't even teach them to do like just taking my hand and helping guide or probably about the time my son was five or six, he would lean over if we were watching something on TV and just kind of tell me what's going on. And maybe he learned that because, you know, his mom does it a lot, but they kind of grew into it, not thinking anything else because it's all they know. Right. And, you know, it's been interesting to try to see how they navigate with other dads. I thank God haven't had them say, well, you're not like so-and-so's dad, you know, like, I mean, I have one that says, you know, my friends let me watch screens all the time. I mean, my friends let me watch screens all the time. So why don't you? You know, there's that. But but in terms of, of being a dad who's blind, I've been impressed with how they just have subconsciously sort of accepted it. And, and it's just nothing out of the ordinary. You know, it's like they, they forget almost. But they don't make a big deal out of it, which is nice.
1: Cool. So let's have a little fun before I let you go. Earlier, you said... You, Leah Life's ambition at that point was to be a roadie for Van Halen. Why not Eddie Van Halen? Why not you know banging out the guitar?
0: I, I was a bass player, so I loved being behind the scenes and keeping the groove down and just being a part of something. I've always liked working behind the scenes. Um, you know, when I was in broadcasting, there was nothing more fun than being in a control room. When I majored in broadcast and journalism in college. And just that idea that you're behind the scenes, that you're making something, right? The, the Michelangelo made great works of art, but you don't really see Michelangelo so much in it, you know, unless maybe he tries to depict himself, you know, like they say, Da Vinci is Mona Lisa, right? Like a self portrait yeah. But in a sense of just uh, artistically and passion, I, I think it's because it's being part of helping others succeed, which is kind of what I do now, I guess, you know, it's funny how I'm not a roadie for Van Halen, but I'm still working behind the scenes to help the mission of the band as you will succeed. So it's, it's, I never really yeah. thought of it to any depth until you asked now, but I guess that's probably it. You know, it's just, it's wanting to be part of something, you know, even if it's a small part, knowing that you're part of something big, not to be in the front spotlight, but just to be part of something big is, is exciting, especially when it's creative artistic movement, when it, when it makes movement makes waves. Wow.
1: That's deep, Tony. Um I'm, I'm a motto German person, and one of my mottos is it's a lot harder to drop the ball when you're part of a team.
0: Well said. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: <laughs> I never heard that, but that's good. I got to steal that if it's okay.
1: Yeah. Use with express
0: written consent from Anthony Corona, of course.
1: Verbal consent. We'll uh, Verbal I'll consent. have him okay. soundbite this so and take yes. it wherever Great. you need to go. <laughs> All right. So. Without getting too personal, you're a storyteller. And if you don't want to answer this, I'll edit it out. But I think you will. You're Tony Stevens. Tell us about that first date after you left Jesuit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I married or How's that sound? I was based in Detroit at the time. I was working at University of Detroit, Mercy, and then was in studies as well. They they drag you out to be a priest. It's like 12 years. So I'm still a baby Jesuit, I guess. I knew I wasn't going to stick around in Detroit. Love, I love the music of Detroit and the people of Detroit, but the transportation for a blind guy in Detroit was horrendous. So as soon as I you know, sort of cut the cord, I jumped on a train, a midnight train to New York City and got off at of Penn Station with my bags and stayed on a friend's couch. Thank God for a lot of friends in the city. and had lots of couches I could always stay on. <laughs> but then a couple of days, I got my first apartment in Brooklyn, and I've never been a bar guy, either, even though I'm Irish Catholic. I'm not much of a bar guy contrary to what people might think. I I was like, I'm going to leave to find a relate, to find another, right. Whoever that person might be. And I, so I did the online thing. I met her on match.com, which was very somewhat new back 15 years ago. And we just kind of, you know, met and dated. And I was real nervous at first. Like, what is she going to, you know, I tried to play it off. Like, (laughs) you know, didn't really drop the bomb. I think she knew, but she didn't know like how bad, you know, it was, Um, (laughs) you know, it was awkward, but, uh, but, yeah, there was a second date and a third date, and you know she she had moved in to New York City after losing her mother after she finished graduate school. She's a high high doctor, and people always say like, "Was she were you a patient of hers?" not a, not a patient, but we had a lot to talk about that was in common those first few dates, and you know, she moved into the city just sort of in her own time of life that the twenties is just an amazing time to just it is. I would have yeah. been in your twenties again, and just to, to to know that you have the world to go seize right. And go conquer and so so she had a strong spirit and extremely creative crafty and uh so yeah so we just we just hit it off and had a lot to talk about and the the eyes helped you know so it's good conversation when the conversation lagged but
1: yeah i'm sure it must have been an interesting conversation when you did talk about Jesuit life and you know yeah. she was actually the first one you dated that been we, we had to have been had.
0: yeah i was i was i mean i I, you know i had i had my whatever you call it on match like you know my little list of potential prospects but she was the one that kept rising to the top and so you know i I mustered up the gumption after being you know a quote celibate for seven years living in with monasteries and cloisters and uh and and mustered up the the gumption to say hey uh you want to go on a date kind of thing and that was an awkward feel, and She was good at, at uh, you know, helping me through some of that awkwardness of just uh, socially putting my foot in my mouth all the time. Like, you know, so stop talking about being a priest all the time. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, sorry about that. <laughs> so. Do
1: you? Stop.
0: But no, yeah, it was, it was good. She was uh, recovering. She's a recovering Catholic like so many uh, these days with just, the, you
1: know. Oh, man. Thing. So, yeah it's... <laughs> yeah yeah I've done some exploration, I think Episcopalian is where I feel most comfortable now, but try everything, you know, I did some Kabbalah, I even flirted slightly with Scientology, oh, um, wow. I have a lot of jewish friends, so i I love the faith that's what kind of put me towards Kabbalah, but yeah. Episcopalian is where you know, I am LGBT. So, you know, the one thing that isn't non-negotiable, you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to love it, but you know, you cannot tell me that God didn't make me and that God doesn't love
0: me. Uh, We started going to Unitarian uh, church and, uh, and love, uh, I think a lot of the philosophy behind the theology. And it's been great for our kids going back to our kids of just making sure they recognize there's a world where we're all equal and should love everybody. So it's, it's a good message that we're gravitated to, and, and Unitarian's nice because it's kind of like you can still be Catholic and be Unitarian. You know, it's not necessarily. It doesn't go the other way around that well. But, um, but yeah, so. yeah,
1: you're always Catholic no matter where you go to church. I definitely, yeah, yeah. So I asked Dan uh, what Leslie would say his best and and most challenging, and you know, his best and most challenging quality is. I'm not going to ask you what your wife says. I'm going to ask you what the boys would say.
0: Dad's stubbornness. <laughs> dad's dad's staunch independence where he drags us on these trips with him sometimes on a bus for hours. Just because he's not going to take an Uber and be lazy, you know, because he wants his boys to know what it's like to ride public transportation. Cause it really shows you part of life. You never see. So, you know, I'd, I'd say that they would say, um, well, dad is stubbornly independent to our detriment as children <laughs> and, uh,
1: and Dale thank time, you for it one day. I yeah, promise. I know. Yeah. I
0: hope so. I hope so. And then on the other end, maybe, uh, you know, I like to think of myself as sort of the, uh, the dreamer, uh, and, uh, letting them know not to, not to run from their dreams. It's okay to go study whatever you want to study in life and we'll love you whoever you end up being. So my hope is nice. that that's also building a seat in there.
1: Is one of them a jokester? Would one of them say, and he can't see us when we make man? uh, Oh, three, two, one, faces.
0: They totally (laughs) try to do stuff behind my back. And, (laughs) you know, it's, I think they're amazed sometimes when I know, and that really stumped. They're like, oh man. You know, they think they can pull fast on their old man, but not all the time.
1: (laughs) Top three places you want to take your family or be
0: with, with your family. Oh, I owe my wife a trip to Barcelona. If I ever get a book published, that was a promise to her. I made before we got married still trying got lots of rejection letters from uh, publishers. So, yeah, so there's that, uh, you know, I would love to get our, our family to, uh, the UK sometime or Ireland and, uh, you know, just to kind of experience, you know, a sense of history. I think it's, it's good to know where you're from and, and to know, you know, some of the, the politics of that country of historically and, um, and, you know, the other place uh, would be uh, to get them back on the boardwalk as soon as they'll open it back up so we can get a Nathan's hot dog on Coney Island.
1: Score oh, cool. and the ride the cyclone.
0: And ride the cyclone. I We were going to do it uh, and this, this spring and uh, alas, our trip got canceled we had to cancel our hotel and everything, but, we will be there as soon as this mayor lets people back in and the boardwalk opens back up. That's probably the first out of those three we'll get to.
1: If you could go back, you know, in the back to the future, uh, DeLorean, if you could go back and hang out with that 15 year old what would you want to tell him?
0: Man, you're good at these questions. Thank you. I would say (laughs) don't be afraid, you know, uh, don't be afraid of going blind. Don't be afraid at what's going to happen to your dad. Don't be afraid about thinking you put everything of your life into a calling, what you think is a calling. And then you realize maybe it's not for you. Don't be afraid when you think the world is on your back and, and, uh, you know, your boss doesn't understand you and it makes you want to jump in front of a train when you go home to work to your newborn son each day. I'd say, don't be afraid.
1: Awesome. I most definitely want to thank you for coming on and sharing your stories with us. Any final thoughts you'd want to give out to ACB at large?
0: You know, I, I think in just letting folks know that ACB is, is a very diverse organization with space for everybody. And we need, we need people to step up and, and you know, breathe a life of new leadership and young leadership and diverse leadership uh, you know, into the organization. I think it's the diversity as our country that we need to uh, embrace. And, and, and so what is your own passion? What is your own calling? And, and just take some time in this isolation and listen for that. You know, In the Jesuits, we did a 30-day silent retreat, and the whole purpose of that was to listen to what that calling is, right? And I think yeah. in this situation of our own isolation, we're well beyond 30 days. Yeah, Listen. So take time to listen. What's your passion? And then find ways to, to be a part of the community to help breathe that passion to life. Because that's going to push us into 10, 20, 30 years. And not just as a community, but as a force of change, it's going to make the world for people who are blind significantly better.
1: And to non-ACB folk, to people who may have experienced the other organization like I did and said, oh, wow, I'm not going to do any blind organizations. Or ones who haven't encountered an organization yet, why ACB?
0: We are a community that is ourselves in so many different places around the country and in so many different points of our life and, and our own story of people that are born blind and people that are going blind now and, and people that know they might go blind soon. It's a large family with room for everybody. There's room on the couch. It's a very big, comfy, comfy couch. So there's room for everybody. And I would say, join us. Even if you're not blind, you know, we have this new ACB friends of ACB, just it's free for that. Even just to join and get on the newsletter and find out what's going on and, uh, and walk with us, be a part of us. You know, we have the, we have the, the convention get keyed into the convention, Uh, start a walk team. It's a great fundraiser where money goes to the affiliates as well. Uh, You know, and and for the walk. Um, So I would encourage people to sign up for the walk and literally as our convention starts, as we're all around the country, uh, this will happen on July 5th at six o'clock at night, uh, before the opening session begins, we're going to walk our way wherever we are in our homes to the opening session of the convention and just walk with us. And if you can't walk with us, then find some time afterwards to walk with us and just be part of the family.
1: Wow. Thank you. I like that. And I think the listeners out there are going to like that very much too. Thank you so much for giving me your time and sharing your stories. And, uh, I hope you'll come back after convention and I'm saying this to just about everybody that I get on the show. So I might have a list in another like three months long, but I hope you'll come back after convention and share the highlights and, and, uh, and rap with me again.
0: It's been my pleasure, Anthony. So we, we will, yeah, definitely look forward to that. And then, you know, so thanks for the invite.
1: You're welcome. Sunday edition. will be right back after this message. Have you been thinking about a guide dog? Wondering if a guide dog might be a good mobility choice for you? Are you wondering how to pick a guide dog school? Guide Dog Users, Inc. is the organization that advocates for the civil rights of guide dog users. We educate the public about our dogs. We share information about living, working, and traveling with guide dogs. And we'd love to get to know you. Listen to our GDUI Juno report on ACB Radio. Visit us at www.guidedogusersinc.org or call us at 866 799 8436. (laughs)
3: I need somebody
4: help. Let's face it. We are increasingly challenged to keep up with ever-changing technology. Would you like more help with how to use some tech device or equipment? How about programs and apps in your personal life and work? Consider joining Blind Information Technology Specialists. BITS. Membership gives you access to our exclusive email list for exchanging ideas, getting sometimes hard to find technical assistance, online presentations, workshops, and tutorials, and our live chat sessions. To join, go to bits-acb.org or email treasurer at bits-acb.org.
1: And welcome back. That was a very interesting interview with Tony Stevens. I didn't know that he was studying to be a priest. Wow. Now, I am joined by the incomparable, beautiful, big-hearted, wonderful Penny Reader in the spotlight, the exit interview. Welcome, Penny.
5: (laughs) Well, thank you, Anthony. I'm glad to be here. Now so, I can't say anything mean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you see, there's a method to my madness.
5: Ah, you are good at it.
1: <laughs> when I first came to ACB, everybody told me about you, and I had to get involved with GDUI and Gabe's as well. Of course, she has you have a
5: beautiful dog. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And then we finally met in person and you lived up to all the hype. You're awesome and I know that your term is ending soon so I wanted to have you on the show to talk A about Penny Reader but also how you pulled GDUI back to the forefront of ACB affiliates.
5: Wow that's an overstatement but I, we, we had a, a ways to come back from, but it wasn't me. It was me and my board and all the members that still believed in GDY. That's why we're back. We all worked very hard, and we were all committed to getting it done. And um, I had hoped that we might be back with a little bit stronger membership. I mean, we certainly double from where we were when we started, what, six years ago, uh, maybe even a little bit more than double. But then – At some point, we began to run out of money, and we had to raise our dues, which had not been raised for something like almost 20 years. And it was a big change from 15 to 25, so we lost a few members. But I think we're coming back. When I joined GDY in the early 2000s, we had over 1,100 members. So that would be my goal for now and the future. I would love to get us back to where we were then. But we're still the strongest, largest most inclusive guide dog membership organization in the country. And that's a good thing.
1: That is a really good thing. Tell me a little bit about the journey from just guide dog user to president reader.
5: I was a a retinopathy of prematurity baby and I could always see. Uh, Well, I thought I could see pretty well, but it turns out, you know, 10% of normal vision is really not that good. Um, But I pretty much pretended I was uh, not blind. Um, my whole life because my parents were terrified of calling me a blind person because, you know, they wanted the best for me. And then, uh, so I always uh, couldn't read the blackboard and couldn't identify identify people by their faces. Um, But Mm -hmm. I could get around pretty well unless it was dark. And then I went to college and um, my first year there, I realized that the reason I had always been able to get around pretty well was because I lived in this, in the same place, and there was nothing different, and I knew what to expect. I knew where all mm-hmm. the steps were and all the tree branches. So my freshman year in college was really a wake-up call, and I realized that I could not see very well. And uh, the next year I met another student who was blind, and she was a wonderful person. She is a wonderful person. Her name is Ellen. She lives in New York. And one day, Ellen and I went to the sub shop in this little college town where we were going to school. We went to Washington College in down. Maryland so we went Mm. to the sub shop late in the afternoon and while we were there it got dark and so when we went to the sub shop I had guided Ellen to the shop but on the way home I couldn't see a thing and she got out her white cane and guided me home Um, and she (laughs) explained to me that if you can't see you're actually a blind person and you need to learn some skills so the next summer I went off to O&M training and I used a cane for a long time. And then when I was in my 30s, my early 30s, I began to lose the vision that I had. But And so after a while, I had this little kid, Zach. He's our, um, our fourth child. And uh, he was a kid who learned how to walk when he was nine months old and was busy running away from home by the time he was 13 months old. Um, and so I thought, <laughs> God, what I need is a dog. I need a guide dog. because. A dog could help me keep track of my kid and keep me safe when I'm out walking. <laughs> so I called a social worker and she said, oh, no, you can't get a dog because you can see a little bit and you have to be totally blind to get a guide dog. And so I didn't know any different for many years. Wow. Then in uh, like 1999, I went to work for ACB. And in the office was Charlie Crawford with his wonderful guide dog Ruthie and Melanie Brunson, whose guide dog's name was Bloom. And I had never even been around guide dog users before. And uh, I said, you know, this is for me. These people can walk really fast and they're not like missing (laughs) curves. And, you know. (laughs) Yes. So I uh, was working for ACB, so I knew that they had a guide dog affiliate. And I called up Jane Sheehan, who was then the office manager. And she said, we have this great book, it's called Making Impressions and it'll help you decide whether or not a guide dog is the right choice for you. So I got the book, it was in Braille, it was probably the third Braille book I had ever read because I didn't learn Braille until I was a grown up either. And um, I remember um, missing my subway stop reading that book because I was so fascinated. And in a few months after that, I applied to Fidelco. I still had little kids at home. And so Fidelco was a good choice for me because I couldn't really be away from my six children uh, for a month at a time. Uh, so Fidelco came to me and they brought me Glory. And that's how I got my first guide dog. And that was in 20, uh, 2001. And there were lots of events that year, if you'll remember. And Glory oh, yeah. got me got me through most of them. So uh It was a love affair from then on with guide dogs, and I was a member all right away. I joined even before Glory came, and so um, I remained a member. I ran for the board at some point, and then I was editor of the magazine Paul Tracks for a while, and that's where we that's how it all came to be.
1: Wow, and so you've had a couple of terms as president, and you are terming out soon you have a successor in mind. What do you have in mind for the, organize- for the um, affiliate going forward?
5: Well, we've come a long way back, and I think there's only one person running for president, and she's a fabulous, wonderful, amazing person, Sarah Calhoun. She's been our secretary for many years, and our office manager, and anyone who calls GDY for just about anything is likely to have spoken with her. I think we're very lucky that she's running, and I think she will do a fabulous job as president. She's really kind. She has her second guide dog. She's a big supporter, and she feels like I do, and many of us do, that getting a guide dog has really made a huge difference in our lives. And so uh, I think she'll do a great job. I hope we keep growing. I hope that the NPRM comes out soon and makes life easier for us as Flyers, but if it doesn't, Mm -hmm. I know that Sarah will be leading the charge for advocating for our civil rights. Um, So that's kind of what I'm hoping. I I do hope we keep growing and that more people get to know about us because we do a lot for guide dogs. Um, One of the best things we do, we have this service that we call the GDY Empathizers. And so if you have a problem when you get a dog, or even if you're just thinking about getting a dog, you can call GDY and probably find someone else who's experiencing at least something similar to what you experienced. So sometimes you come home with a dog and your mother insists on feeding your dog chocolate and you don't know what to do. That's when you call GDY and we can say, (laughs) we've been there and we've experienced that and this is what worked for us. you know. Or sometimes your dog is really ill and you're terrified and it's good to talk to somebody who's been there too when that's happening. So I think that's one of our best services and I know that under Sarah, it will grow and be even better.
1: Absolutely. There's also other areas of support if you have an emergency with your dog that you guys offer, which I think is absolutely beautiful.
5: We do. We have this called, I always get it wrong, it's called the DAP, the Disaster Assistance and Preparedness Program. It was endowed or has been endowed by several people over the years. It's not a huge fund, but it's a big enough fund to at least help people uh, when there's a disaster. Uh, It originated when there were some terrible uh, tornadoes in the Midwest, and um, one of our members lived near where the tornadoes occurred and suggested that this was something we could do, and we're we're very proud of it. So if you're in a natural disaster, or even this current disaster, and you find that you're having trouble affording taking care of your dog, you can come to us, and we can't give you a big grant, but we can give you enough of a grant to tide you over. We're very proud of the the program. We had a couple people the year of the big, not last year, but the year before last, when there was a hurricane in Houston and another one in Florida and a third one in Puerto Rico. And there were enormous fires in California. And we helped people in those circumstances, and we felt really good about it.
1: That's It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, you know, you said earlier about you know, getting my dog in, and you were able to move faster. And I, for me, it was life or death. I, I could move with the cane, I could do. But if it wasn't for the guide dog, I, I if it wasn't for Bodie, I, I, I don't think I'd be able to continue going on. And, and
3: I, really I know was. just
1: what
5: you mean. I hate going out without my dog. In fact, I almost never, ever do. And, and I just, I'm not a, an excellent cane traveler, but I can survive most of the time. And I never feel comfortable, and I never feel confident, and I never feel like I look confident either.
1: Yeah. I kept waiting for that moment. You know, my O&M instructor and the few people that I had met in the blind community along the way at that point kept saying, it'll become an extension. It'll feel like part of you and I kept waiting for that moment and it never happened. And I hadn't had, we had a dog when I was young, I hadn't had a dog, I had cats, you know, all my mm-hmm. life until that point. And I was like, I didn't know, for, I love animals. Absolutely. Um, My niece and nephew, I gave them two Yorkies for two separate Christmases. Oh, um, right. So, you know, I had an idea that it probably would be okay, but you know, Depending on me, me depending on him, and so you know, at that moment, it it was like if this doesn't work, there's nothing else for me. There's nowhere else for me to oh, go. I,
5: I know just I, how I, you felt. Yeah,
1: yeah. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about, about Penny. I, you said six kids. That I didn't know.
5: I do have six children now. They're all grown ups, but they're still my kids. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so we have, I, uh, and I'm married too. And we have four boys and uh, two girls, and um, uh, two of our children live in New Orleans, Katrina and Casey, and Alex lives in Atlanta, and Molly lives in Richmond, and Seth lives here with us, and uh, Zach lives close to us in the same town. Wow. And we have a bunch of grandchildren. Alex has three girls, Mm -hmm. Maya, Olivia, and Amanda. And Katrina has a little girl, Etta, who's actually, her, her name is Penelope Elisabetta, and they, she's called Etta, but I'm very flattered that they named her after me.
3: And <laughs> um,
5: and Nico, who is uh, 17. Nico and Amanda are our oldest grandchildren, and they're about to be seniors in high school next year. And Etta is the youngest, and she is six. Wow.
1: God bless.
5: But we don't get to see them very often, and now with this quarantine who knows when we'll get to see him but we do talk on the phone
1: so we're all six still at home when you came home with your first dog oh you Uh, sure I'm sorry
5: Katrina was um not home I think she was in college let me think about it Seth was four he was or maybe he was six he was six and so uh Katrina yeah she was out of just in her last year of college or in her first year of marriage one or the other but everybody else was still home it was a big deal, and they were so thrilled. They had wanted a dog for years, so
3: they were all very
5: excited. <laughs> and Glory yeah. was a great dog. She did not work out perfectly as a guide dog, but she was a great dog, and she was a revelation for me. And it, until things didn't work out, things were really good. But Glory had this obsession with small things that move. She had to chase them, and she did not like cats. And we actually had a cat at the time, poor kitty. Um, and uh, and it just got to the point where if Grace saw like a squirrel or some small animal, she might not have been careful when I was ready to cross the street. So she retired after 18 months and she went back to live with her puppy raising family and we kept in touch and she had a really good life. She She became close to their grandchildren and went to the donut shop with her human papa every morning and got a donut and some Dunkin Donuts coffee and she had a good life Um, and after glory just two weeks later I got Tess and Tess was like the poster child for a guide dog she was a perfect guide dog Um, and she was my guide dog until she was 11 and she passed away and then I got Willow who is now 11 uh, and and I got her from the seeing eye and she's a wonderful guide dog too she's a little growly but she's a good dog
1: (laughs) she is (laughs) So, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to cause any friction with the readers, but who, which of the six does Willow love the most?
5: <laughs> uh, she loves my husband the most. She would do anything for Carl. Anything. <laughs> because he always plays with her, you know, and uh, he, she likes me. She does exactly what I want, and she's very sweet, but he's her favorite. So um, she also likes Seth, and he's still living at home, especially now during the quarantine when he can't go to work. So she's been really happy to have both Carl and Seth here to play all day while I'm working. So it worked out.
1: What are you guys doing to keep her spirits and her obedience slash work ethic in check check during?
5: You know, she's never been – I work from home, so I have never gone out with her every day. And she's always been perfect. When I pick up the harness, she is ready to work. And um, she doesn't forget what she's supposed to do. And when I'm not, when I'm at the computer and she's just hanging out here, she's very happy to go on a walk now and then with my husband or to play uh, catch the ball with my son in the backyard. So she's, she's doing fine. And she likes obedience too. When we do it, it makes her happy to do it well. So we don't do it every day, but we do it maybe three times a week.
1: Well, luckily enough, as you know, but and the listeners know at this point, I'm, I'm here with Gabe, so Posh and Bodhi are together.
5: Oh, they're they so lucky, to, and they love each other. <laughs>
1: they do love each other, but we do Obedience every day, and they have the pool, which we just got Posh finally fully Whoa, into. that's so
5: nice. Oh, that's great.
1: Yeah, and every other day or so, we have a doggy dance party. And we just throw on some music and play around the kitchen, do a puppy <laughs> massage great. and let them, yeah, just let them, you know, kind of get it out of their system. And I mean, they love it. Nice. We love it. Yeah.
5: Ru- uh, Willow has a best friend, Rudolph. He's a giant German shepherd from Guiding Eyes who belongs to our friend Frank. And Rudolph has come many times. I think he's eight. And he's come many times for sleepovers if Frank and Terry were traveling and they were going somewhere where he couldn't go. And so I know that Willow and Rudolph really miss each other. Uh, they they can usually tell when when I and Terry are on the phone with each other. You know, they're just sitting there looking at the phone. <laughs> and I know they really they miss having each other to play with. Willow really Willow. loves Rudolph, and you know she's she's not aggressive, but she doesn't love every dog. But she adores Rudolph, and when he comes for sleepovers. She'll even let him sleep in her crate, and she'll sleep on the floor outside. She she adores it.
1: Now that's love. given It is. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to ask you two things as, you know, GDUI guru and wonderful, wonderful hearted Penny. To someone who is on the fence about going the guide dog route, what do you tell them?
5: Oh, I tell them to get our book. It's one of our biggest accomplishments. It's a guide for the prospective guide dog user. It's on BARD. Uh, It's on Bookshare. You can buy it for under $5 from the publisher. And it's a book that tells you, helps you make that decision. Like the book I read long ago called Making Reflections. It tells you the pros and cons. It describes different kinds of training and different kinds of schools It it tells you what to expect when you come home with your guide dog. And so I would say start with the book and then talk to guide dog users who are your friends and hang out with them. I don't think we're supposed to let people take our harness, but really Debbie Grubb let me take Libby's harness many, many years ago and that helped me make up my mind. But the other thing that helped me know that that's what I wanted to do was being in the office with Charlie and Melanie. Because as I said, they could do so many more things so much more confidently than I could do.
1: And the second thing I wanted to ask you is, and it's, it's, it's got to be a hard thing, and I dread the day. When you're coming up on the point when you know you have to retire your dog, how do you know? When do you know?
5: I've never actually, re- well, you know, I told you that things didn't work out with Glory. So she retired because it wasn't safe. Uh, Fidelka worked with her. They took her back to school. Twice, they brought her back to me twice, and it just didn't work out, but they really bent over backwards to make it work. And then it just got unsafe, and so it was kind of a mutual decision between me and Fidelco. And, uh, but Tess was getting older, and it got to, she had terrible hips. Her hips really hurt, and she had had bad hips for many years. It started really early with her. And so it got to the point where I would say to Tess something like, we're going to go to Trader Joe's. Do you want to come or do you want to stay here? And if she wanted to go, she would come to the harness, which is hanging on a railing near our front door. And if she didn't want to come, she would go curl up in her bed. So she really told me. And I think that's how you know. You know if your dog is slowing down. I apply, I've applied at the Seeing Eye. I don't know how soon it will happen with this quarantine. Um, but Willow is slowed down. And she sometimes doesn't come to harness the first time I call. Sometimes she comes the second time. She never refuses, but you know she's eleven, and so she is older, and she is slowing down, and it's time for her to retire, I think. And I think that's how you know. I think your dog. People, I used people used to say that to me. Oh, your dog will tell you, and I'm like, you're yeah, right, but it's true. I think your dog really does tell you.
1: Awesome. Well, you listen to the show, so you know I like to have a little bit of fun with everybody. So I prepared a couple of questions for you.
5: All right. I'm getting ready.
1: (laughs) The first one is, in the next life, if you were to come back as a dog, what kind of dog and why?
5: I would come back as one of those little pocketbook dogs that people can take with them anywhere they want to go. I think that would (laughs) be really fun. They're very spoiled and very pampered, and that would be a good life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Tell us your funniest guide dog mishap or, you know, your funniest guide dog story. Gee,
5: that would be hard. Let me think about it. Well, one time when Tess was fairly new, we were having a big family get together. So my parents were here and my sister and her husband and all of our children and some of their girlfriends or boyfriends. There were lots of us at the table, and we grilled hamburgers because it was in May, and it was a nice day. And so and the table was very crowded because there were so many of us. So we, Carl made two hamburgers for everybody, and we put the second platter of hamburgers on like a TV tray next to the table. And then people were finished with the first round, and we went to pass around the platter of the second round and it was empty. And Tess had never done anything like that in her life. She was such a good dog. And she had never stolen a thing. But the hamburgers were gone. And uh, that was very shocking. And fortunately, everyone loved Tess as much as I did. And they all forgave her. And we just had extra ice cream for dessert. Um, But it was pretty funny. And I don't think I fed her for two days because she had eaten at least two and a half pounds of hamburger wow so that may not be the funniest thing but it's the thing that always comes to mind we've all had really funny experiences with our dogs
1: so. did you take her for the first busy busy after that burger meal?
5: <laughs> yeah i think i was the one destined to have to do that
1: <laughs> when this is all over what's the first thing you want to do
5: I have a weekend without anything to do except weekend stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I think I should mention advocacy because I didn't. And I want people to realize that GDY works really hard advocating for their rights, their civil rights. And we've taken a a big role in this NPRM for the Department of Transportation. And we're very hopeful that things will work out so that the planes will stop being full of fake service dogs, and we can get through the airport without having somebody lunge after our dog and make life difficult. And GDY has a history of advocacy too, you know. We, we are the organization that made Hawaii accept guide dogs without quarantining them for several weeks. And a couple years ago, my husband and I went to Hawaii with Willow, and we had a great time and uh, I was very grateful to GDY while I was there that I could walk around with Willow. And it's a really guide dog friendly state. And everyone was so friendly and welcoming. Oh, that was a good thing. And I just want to say that GDY will continue in that role. We do lots of things to uh, help people and lots of things to make people feel more comfortable. And, you know, we offer some products for sale. And we have a fabulous convention, which we will have this year, too but advocacy is also one of the main things we do and it's important.
1: Absolutely, and I know, Sarah, the transition will be wonderful, and I know Absolutely. that you'll always be there as support and, and as the mama of GDUI.
5: <laughs> For the moment, <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> so tell, tell everybody, A, you know, where they can go if they want to add their voice to advocacy and where they can find GDUI easily
5: www.guidedogusersinc.org or you can also put in www.gdy.org, and there's all kinds of resources there. Uh, We also have a wonderful program on ATB Radio which Deb Cook-Lewis puts on for us. (laughs) It's called the GDY Juno Report. It will air, uh, I think tomorrow night will be the first show. No, Friday night will be the first show uh, we're also participating. Something a willow. What do you see out there? <laughs> I just must be something. Um, there's a. Whole, it's there's like a, a lot of, you know, animals and stuff around now that there aren't so many people on the streets. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? Oh, the community calls. We have a call tomorrow night. Uh, I think this will air after our call, but we've done one, and this one tomorrow night will be our second. And we're going to keep doing them. And tomorrow night, our community calls for anyone who wants to join. And it's a Zoom call. And if you just go to the ACB website, you'll be able to get in touch with Cindy. He'll give you the Zoom information. It's also going to be on ACB Radio Interactive. Um, And we're going to be talking again about how to survive the quarantine with our dogs. Uh, The first, first one we did, we talked about how to entertain our dogs and keep them happy since they weren't working. And this time we're going to focus on, um, Charlie named this program, we're calling it, uh, what's he calling it, grooming and grub. So uh, he's talking about how to groom your dogs, which I sure would. I hope somebody has an answer for the toenail question.
3: Um, <laughs> and,
5: <laughs> and also how to get dog food if you can't find what you need. So, so that'll be tomorrow night at eight. And then we're going to do others too. We're going to try to do one once a month. And we're going to have a great convention too. Um, So there'll be uh, we always do a guide dog roundup, guide dog school roundup at convention, and uh, so we'll definitely be doing that on the first day for our program. And we have some good speakers as well. And uh, I I think you should definitely check out our virtual convention as well.
1: Absolutely. Well, Penny, thank you for taking some time. Give Willow a big pat on the head and a nice belly rub from me and Bodie and I hope that next year at convention we can have a doggy room and a play date
5: oh, and a I big know awoke. I miss it it's <laughs> gonna be terrible
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: then we're just gonna have to do all those things virtually thank you Anthony this was fun I enjoyed it
1: thank you thank you thank you I'll be right back with more of Sunday edition after this message stay tuned <laughs>
4: The Florida Council of the Blind is one of the largest state affiliates of the American Council of the Blind with 22 chapters and special affiliates. Check us out at fcb.org and join a sunny place for happy members. Mention promo code FCB2020 and receive your first year of membership free. Contact Sally Benjamin at 850-980-0205 or email sal benjamin. that's S-A-L, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N at Comcast.net. Hope to see you at the beach.
3: Greetings, ACB members and friends from the Florida Council of the Blind. This is Debbie Grubb. I serve on the FCB Convention Committee as Program Chair. It is my privilege to publicly thank Executive Director Eric Bridges, President Dan Spoon, And from ACB Radio, Debbie Hazleton, Jason Castingway, Jeff Bishop, and Rick Morin for assisting us to present our 2020 convention on the Zoom platform and streaming on ACB Radio. Thanks, too, to our good friend and FCB member, Anthony Corona, for offering us this opportunity to publicize this event. We are grateful for ACB's confidence and trust in us to make the virtual convention Maiden Voyage on ACB Radio. We in FCB are doing our utmost to be worthy of that confidence and trust. And so it is with great excitement and anticipation that we bring you this invitation to share our convention with us taking place on Friday May 15, and Saturday, May 16. I can promise you that we look forward to sharing virtual conventions from all over the country and certainly ACB's main event in July. Documentation will be sent to ACB lists and its website with all of the program information, including how to access it on the Zoom platform in case you think that you would like to ask a question or make a comment during any presentation. The entire convention will, of course, be streamed on ACB radio with all of the many available listening opportunities. As we move through our program between sessions, you will have the opportunity to hear from our gratefully acknowledged convention sponsors and hear reports from many who have been populating our exhibit hall had life not so drastically changed over these past several weeks. And now, here is a brief description of our program, given in the hope that you will be drawn to participate in this virtual convention, Maiden Voyage with us. Friday, the Braille Revival League of Florida will bring us another in their most helpful toolbox presentations to assist those of us for whom Braille is an essential part of our everyday lives. Come join guide dog users of Florida for an exciting and timely panel presentation, enhancing your travel experiences with your guide. Come and learn from the members of the FCB Technology Committee as they share information to enhance use of grocery and food delivery services from various providers directly to you upon request. Inherited Retinal Disease, IRD, an opportunity to learn about and participate in a meaningful research and genetic counseling presented by Ben Shaberman, Director of Science Outreach and community relations for the Foundation Fighting Blindness. The annual FCB legislative seminar promises to be another interesting and informative journey into the world of working with those who represent us in the state legislature and in the U.S. Congress. Audio description in museums. Presented by Stacia Boyd, president of Q Media Productions, and audio description developer. On Friday evening, FCB will hold its Bring Your Own Food and Drink Awards Banquet during which the Florida Council of the Blind and its chapters will honor those who have significantly contributed to the ongoing work of the organization. Saturday begins with a conversation with ACB President Paul Edwards past president of the American Council of the Blind and of the Florida Council of the Blind, will moderate and participate in a conversation with ACB past presidents, Kim Charlson, Chris Gray, Mitch Pomerantz, and President Dan Spoon. ACB National Office, what happens there? Join Claire Stanley and President Dan Spoon as they take you through a typical day at the ACB National Office membership outreach to our contemporaries and to the next generation presented by Claire Stanley advocacy and outreach specialist American Council of the Blind and Cindy Hollis Van Winkle membership services coordinator American Council of the Blind ACB has a new vital affiliate the next generation Claire Stanley who is a member of this diverse generation, and Cindy Van Winkle will speak with us about this next generation affiliate. FCB annual town hall meeting. Please plan to attend this exciting and informative meeting moderated by FCB President Sheila Young. The Coalition for the Concerns of the Totally Blind is proud to introduce to you Mark Arneson from the Hadley Institute founded in 1920 which serves nearly 150,000 individuals each year who are unable to read printed materials living in all 50 states and in 100 other countries. The Florida Council of Citizens with Low Vision is proud to bring a program of tips and tricks for cooking with low vision presented by Judy Matthews, Adult Services Supervisor, Lighthouse Central Florida, ably assisted by colleagues and friends from the Lighthouse. Saturday evening, President Dan Spoon will open our virtual annual banquet in his own very warm style. Our keynote speaker is Claire Stanley, who will introduce herself to us speak about her life, her career, what prepared her for and what brought her to the American Council of the Blind. Come join us. You're so welcome.
1: What's happening with Brian Velasquez? Thank you for listening today. I am here with Brian and we are talking about his initiative for advocacy for parenting and not sheltering children who are blind or low vision. Welcome to the program, Brian.
2: Thank you very much for having me. And first and foremost, I would like to send out a very, very special happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. May all your days be filled with blessings. Enjoy your Mother's Day to the fullest with your children, whether it's through video, through FaceTime. We may all not be together at this moment, but... Let's all enjoy this Mother's Day with peace and prosperity. Absolutely.
1: Uh, I had a little message at the beginning of the show uh, for mothers, and uh, I'm very happy to say that even in this time of not being able to gather and touch, that there are ways for us to you know, interact with our mothers and, and send them the, uh, the love and the warmth, even if we can't give them the big hug that we know they deserve. So, Brian, 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 tell me a little about yourself.
2: Well, I am 29 years old. I reside in Upper Manhattan in New York City. I graduated with a bachelor's degree in therapeutic recreation from St. Thomas Aquinas College. I have lived in New York all my life. I have worked in Coney Island Hospital, done opening monologues for the Big Apple Circus in New York City, And I have also done news reports with various news stations such as WNYC and Fox 5 in regards to accessibility and travel and what it was like to travel as a blind person. I am really interested in looking into voiceover. I'm exploring that. Of course, that's been put on pause because of the current situation, but Hopefully, when things get back to normal, I will continue to hit the ground, running stronger than ever before.
1: Awesome, awesome, awesome. You lived your whole life in Upper Manhattan.
2: Correct. What was it like when you were a kid? Well, um, when I was a kid, there was a lot of of nostalgic memories. Um, I used to love Mr. Softy, the ice cream truck going by. Um, We used to always play outside, me and my siblings and friends from the neighborhood. And, of course, you know, it was definitely a lot of supervision, you know, with me running around the streets. And I want, they wanted to make sure that I was okay, And which we'll get into in a minute, and the reason why we are in this discussion in the first place.
1: Well, that was sort of my lead into it, so let's go right into it. What was it like when you wanted to go to the store, or you wanted to go to the park, or your friends wanted to run around the block with you?
2: the constantly no 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 be careful oh my god be careful with him take care of him he's gonna get hurt watch him Da-da-da. there were times that i would go out with people and they would be like no 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 no, you gotta sit here you can't do this it's too high for you the the the, the bar is too high for you i was like no i want to do it i want to do it and of course me being little it's like oh man why can not i do it other people are doing it i want to do it too i want to be cool i want to be cool like everybody else so That happened some instances. When was the first time you got on a bus by yourself or a train? Uh, At the age of 17 years old. And was your family supportive of that? It was mixed. They were supportive and very, you know, scared at the same time. You know, let's face it. You know, this is a new phase. Here is a kid who grew up in Upper Manhattan with everybody seeing him used to having somebody with him, him grabbing onto someone's arm. And here he is being loose to travel by himself, being released to travel by himself. For example, it's as if an elephant had escaped the circus. That was the view. Everybody saw me around my neighborhood. Everybody knew. Everybody started calling my family. Everybody brought it to their attention. It was incredible. You know. And it goes to show, you know, everybody wherever you live, Everybody was supportive, you know, where I was living. People knew me for many, many, many years. People saw me grow up. So the support was still there. So my job as someone who was blind was to show them, no, 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 this is how this works. And explain to them. It isn't hurt to explain to them, okay, this is what happens when we travel. We cross the street when we travel. We listen to the traffic. As I said in my news report with WNYC Radio, which covered a whole day of me traveling By myself, what would that be like? So, I took the reporter on a journey to the original Shake Shack in New York City, and you know, I did explain to her about how we travel, how we listen to the traffic going parallel. Um, how I, as a person, when I travel, when people approach me, because what is the assumption people have when they see you with the cane or walking in a train station? Oh, is he lost? Can I help you? Are you okay? that's the assumption us as blind people we have to you know it's easier said than done you know you do have your moments but it's up to you to show them and explain to them how you navigate and have an open mind about it
1: and when a fellow traveler doesn't understand or respect the boundaries of what assistance you may or may not need what's your standard go-to how do you answer
2: oh no no thank you or Thank you very much for your help. When I was younger, I used to get kind of like, no, I don't need your help. No, no, no. But I've learned not to do that because what if the person sees me again and I really needed the help? The person's going to be like, screw you. You know, he insulted me. I'm not going to help you, you know? Absolutely. What's the
1: scariest set of traveling you've had to do so far?
2: I must say one time when it was snowing. Mm. As much as I love the snow, I, was, I remember going, traveling to school. It wasn't snowing too, too much, though. But I was concerned that the bus was going to crash into something or there was going to be like a, you know, a popped tire. So I was a little concerned about that.
1: And what do you say to those people who say, well, you know, you have that, that little white bus. You have the, the uh, accessor ride that
2: comes and gets you. Why do you have to be on the train?" Very, very good question. And you don't know how many times I've gotten that. Here's the thing with accessoride or paratransit in general. When you depend on something like paratransit, you're limited. You're not really free to make your decision. You're not really free. You are time constrained. Let's say if you're at school or you're at work and you have something afterwards or your coworkers want to go to dinner and you're like, oh no, oh I can't because my ride picks me up at six thirty. So we're gonna have to leave at four something because that's picked up at six thirty. That's time constraints, and it's not fair for you, and it's not fair for the other person. What if at work you had a meeting? You had your meeting was from two to four. You know, some bosses don't really care if you have excess ride. You know, yet you if you're there, you have to be there from two to four, and two to four. That's what's gonna be. You no know, if, friends or buts. So if you leave 15, leave fifteen minutes before because of your ride, not many people are going to bend over backwards for you. So it either comes too early or it comes too late, which I'm gonna, which I'm going to lead into this. When I was in school, high school, I took a bus ride for some time because I just couldn't stand the school bus. I didn't want to be in the school bus anymore. The school bus was dropping me way too late at school. I had to be at school at seven forty-five in the morning. So. That was a big challenge. So taking ride, either I got there too late or too early versus public transportation. I was free. I was able to make my own decision. I could take the bus, like, say, at 7.05 and get there at 7.30. 15 minutes before, you know, in between, not too early, not too late. Like, you know, for example, Goldilocks. Not too warm, not too cold, just right. So you
1: got what's called O&M, mobility training. You started using the trains. You started getting on buses. People in the neighborhood started to recognize that you didn't need constant supervision, as they called it. And that sort of leads now into the next project that you want to work on. And that's having awareness to parents who are raising blind children and what may or may not hinder or help them going forward. Why this?
2: You want the best for your children, okay? And part of that is you have to let go. I know it's easier said than done. Trust me, I was there. Parents, you know, you gotta let go. You have to start, you know, letting your children be exposed to the different methods of travel, O&M training, and of course, technology. Technology is really advanced. You have IRA, you have Google Maps. This is a great opportunity for children who are becoming teenagers or in their preteens to start learning about apps, accessible apps for travel. With me, surprisingly, I didn't have an iPhone until 2018. What? I had a flip phone.: Yeah. No. Yes, that is correct. Surprisingly, wow. Yes. So that opened
1: up, I'm not even going to say a whole new world. That must have opened up 10 whole new worlds
2: for you. It did. It did 10 whole new worlds and counting because, you know, when I used to travel by myself, I used to ask, you know, have to depend on people. Oh, wait a minute. Where is this place? I need to get to so-and-so, so-and-so. And people would have to look on their phones or look it up for me. Because I didn't have the tools. I didn't have Google Maps. I didn't know what Ira was. I didn't know. I mean, I've heard of the apps, but I didn't have no clue about how to use these apps and all this technology and all these methods of travel. So, boom, I get my iPhone August 2018. Um, One day I decided to go to the Apple Store on 14th Street, get an iPhone, and boom. Now I opened up all these doors. I even teach iPhones at the Andrew Haskell library to the patrons there. So that's a cool experience. I started that a month after I got the iPhone. I started teaching because once wow. I got it, I started like playing around with it and playing with the voiceover and exploring it on my own. And then come all these apps and IRA and all this stuff. I'm introduced to all these amazing apps and voila.
1: So for our listeners who are in other areas of the country, the Andrew Haskell library is part of the New York public library system, but it is also part of the NLS and it is specifically devoted to blind and low vision. They have technological programs. They have teaching like Brian does, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're setting out to teach the iPhone with a family and you have to start talking to the parents, what message do you want them to get from what you're giving their child?
2: Sadly, the clients have not really been families, but let's say, let's say if that was the case, right? Let's say if I had a family come in, oh, you know, my child is interested in an iPhone. The first thing I'll say is, this will benefit in the short term and long term with accomplishing his goals in independence, school, and life in general.
1: And with your new set of advocacy, where do you want to go with it? Do you envision it as programming? Do you envision it as setting webinar series? Where do you want to go with this?
2: You know, this is a start, you know, I'm really looking, really, really thinking about this. I would definitely love to do web, you know, programming. I really enjoy the person to person aspect of all of this. I really would love to do live programs and seminars with parents with children who are visually impaired, because I think they need to hear from the horse's mouth, a person who has been through the stages of learning to travel independently through O&M, through family concerns, um, some sheltering. I think they need to hear from the person itself, not a third-party person as a mobility instructor or Uh, or an an artsy teacher, for example, I think they need to really hear from and look up to someone who has been through it all, who has experienced it, and who can give them tips on how to overcome that. Strategies, uh, maybe have one-to-one conversations, maybe outside the programs, chat with them, video chat or via phone or whatever whatever resources they may need or advice they may need from that particular person.
1: I know that you will eventually, when this is all said and done, go back to full-time work, but this is your passion. This is the project you're setting up and you're gearing it more towards the parents to help independence within children. So let's throw this question out. If you could go back to 14-year-old Brian, before you had the independence of mobility, when you were starting to really understand that you wanted to get into the world, what would you tell him?
2: You can do it. If you put your mind to it, you can do it. It's going to take time. I know it's easier said than done, but eventually you can do it. And the 14-year-old Brian would say, which, which was me, I was like, oh my God, am I ever going to take the gym of myself? What is that going to be like? Mind you, at 14, I didn't, I didn't even use accessory at 14. I was straight up school bus, straight up school bus and straight traveling with family up and down the city. Well, you've got a great partner
1: at the Haskell Library, and you came to the right place to bring further awareness to the project that you're kicking off. We are going to host a Zoom webinar in a couple of days to answer questions and to connect you with some of the ACP movers and shakers that can assist you in bringing your message globally. I definitely want to thank you for coming on the show today, and I want you to give us one last message about advocacy for young children.
2: Parents, don't give up. I know it's hard. I was there, but there's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of organizations that you can turn to for assistance to help your child become the most functional, grown adult in society. But it's up to you to take the steps we will be here any step of the way. I will be happy to help. I know the city is tough to navigate. It's a big, big learning process for a lot of children, but you can do it. We're just one click away, one call away. We will be here to satisfy your needs.
1: Brian, tell them where they can find you on social media and where they can find the links to the programs that you've done so far.
2: Okay, you can find me at Velasquez at Facebook.com. Brian, which is B R Y A N Velasquez, V E L A Z as in zebra, Q U E Z as in zebra. You can also find me at Instagram at Velasquez 809 And. I am starting a YouTube channel soon. It's Brian Velasquez at YouTube if you guys are interested. Awesome. So thank you for coming
1: on today. I look forward to hosting the Zoom conversation and letting everybody get to know a little bit more about your initiative and connecting you with people that will help your initiative go global. Stay tuned. Come back sometime soon and let us know how everything's going. Thanks a lot, Brian. You're welcome. Sunday edition will be right back after this message.
4: We are Friends in Art, an affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, joining with others to share talents appreciating arts of all kinds. We advocate for accessibility of art from software to theaters and venues, as well as offering an annual scholarship for blind or visually impaired students pursuing their talents and studies of art. Visit friendsinart.com, your membership helps us to support students while continuing to grow our organization. That's friendsinart.com. Hey, Jason, do you remember BPI? Oh, yeah, Blind LGBT Pride International. They're a special
0: interest affiliate of ACB.
4: Yes, they are the ones doing all these cool things at convention, yoga, wine tastings, fun parties, as well as other interesting learning activities. Well, guess what they're up to now? Ooh, do tell. They are now having their own show on ACB Radio Mainstream. It's called Pride Connection.
0: That's great, but what if I'm not a part of the LGBT community?
4: no worries this is a show for everyone actually non-lgbt and non-disabled folks are known as allies and they are a huge portion of bpi's membership and in the words of bpi's leadership everyone is welcome bpi is proud to offer an open space where you can be yourself
0: Mm, so what kinds of topics can i expect from pride connection
4: Fun and relevant topics for everyone, from blindness topics to LGBT education, technology to advocacy, accessibility issues to everyday topics.
2: So when will Pride Connection take place?
4: Every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to tune in so we can all connect, mingle, and learn while having fun. Pride Connection.
0: Join the BPI party every Tuesday at 10
4: p.m. on, on ACB, ACB Radio, Radio Mainstream.
1: Mainstream. Well, I'm back, and in my head I'm hearing, And so you're back from outer space. I just walked in to find you here with that sad look upon your face. But you're not here, listen to me saying so I will stop right there. What a great show so far. I wanted to take a moment to wish all the mothers out there in every form possible, whether you biologically gave birth, adopted, whether you were someone's second mama, whether you're a mama of fur babies, however you identify as a mom, happy, 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 happiest Mother's Day. I hope that everybody listening reached out to whoever and whatever form of mom, that they identify with and to. And so, yeah, please, please take my warmest of happiest Mother's Day wishes. What else is happening? Well, I wanted to highlight something that ACB Students, Next Generation, and Blind Pride is doing. On May 23rd, we will be holding a trivia night in conjunction with... Next gen's Saturday Night Live Hangout. We'll be distributing some information about it. There'll be a sign-up sheet and we will randomly assign teams. Um, when you sign up, you'll be able to say if you want to play for one of the three affiliates. It's open to all, but you can, you know, but we'll ask you to sign up to play for one of the three affiliates, and then we'll randomly assign teams. and there'll be a very cool and fun moderator. Keeping the flow, asking the questions, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to go into all the details of how it will work, but trust me, it'll be a fun night and it will work. So stay tuned for that. I also wanted to take a moment to talk about something that is uh, very, very important, but not getting, you know, a lot of press or coverage, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the census. It counts every time the census comes around, but it counts very much this year for a lot of different reasons. Voting uh, is a big topic, but distribution of services and funds and representation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I am not a legalese, I am not an advocacy specialist, but I wanted to remind everyone to please, please participate in the census, do your part. It is very important that everyone is counted and everyone is counted accurately. Having said all that, I'd like to also remind everyone about Pride Connection. You can hear it Tuesday nights on ACB Radio Mainstream. It replays Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m. and at 7 and 7 on Sundays. And now, Sunday edition, going forward, starting next week, will be a live broadcast program here on ACB Radio Mainstream. Next week, we're going to feature a roundup about Florida Council of the Blind's virtual convention. The first one, dry run for national convention. So listen in when I have a round table of awesome people, including ACB president and FCB president and some other fun people. And I will have my second hour with Joel Snyder of the Audio Description Project. He will be answering all of your questions. They'll be calling information distributed next week. So please join me again next Sunday and every Sunday as we brunch together, talk to some movers and shakers, spotlight some great people and get down and into what's happening out there. You've been listening to Sunday edition with Anthony on ACB radio mainstream. For more information, questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, etc please email celebration ac that's the word celebration with the letters ac at aol.com look forward to hearing from you and let's brunch again next sunday